All right, if you will, grab your Bibles. You may also want to take out your Mark journal. If you do not have a Mark journal, that's okay. You don't need one. Uh, But there are some blank pages in there. I would invite you to find uh, the blank page for uh, the weekend of the 22nd. So I'm sorry that I don't have it in front of me, but that should be about page 035 or 6, I believe. 37. Thank you, Whit Leonard. And so in that, it gives you a space to jot some things down. This may be one of those uh, chapters that you want to jot a few things down. And it's not because what you're going to hear from me is all that uh, inspiring necessarily, but because there's just a lot to go through. Now, let me give you a disclaimer, and then we're going into it. Some lessons tend to be heavy on inspiration, meaning you go, yeah, I'm ready, let's do this thing. And those are the fun lessons. Those are the ones that I I like to prepare and the ones I like to present. And my guess is those are probably the ones that most of us prefer to listen and be part of. And those are very good. So some are full of inspiration. And then there are others that are heavier on information, maybe not as much inspiration. This one tonight is going to at least the, the chunk of it, the first bulk of it will be more information. But here's what I hope you'll see is if we can wade through it together, it's going to answer some fundamental questions that are necessary for Christ followers to wrestle to the ground and be able to wrap their arms around confidently. And here's how I want to begin. I want us to think back. The very first song that I remember learning in church growing up, and, and maybe, maybe this was the first one you learned as well. Let's see if we, if we know it. If you know it, you can join me in it, okay? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Okay, so you went to church as well growing up, right? <laughs> okay. Jesus loves me, this I know, why? For the Bible tells me so, now here's the question that we've got to wrestle with because this passage is a thorny passage. The question is, do you trust Jesus and do you trust the Bible? Now, if you grew up in church or if you're already a Christ follower, you might be thinking, Diggs, this is a hard question. Come on, this is like Bible or Christianity 101. You love Jesus, you trust Jesus, you, you get wet, you almost drown in the baptismal waters. I mean, this is the obvious starting point. Why are we even talking about this? Here's, here's why. And this is, the, this is the big question we're gonna kind of walk through with this passage. Can we trust Jesus and the Bible? Now, this seems like on the surface an obvious question. Here's why this is a tough question for the passage we're going in tonight. Mark chapter 13 is the longest teaching by Jesus in the entire gospel according to Mark. The entire 37 verses are one long teaching from Jesus. Now, another term used to uh, describe this text, this is often called the Olivet Discourse. Olivet, referencing the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, if you kind of want a setting here, you have the city of Jerusalem. And if you go east down into the Kidron Valley and you come back up, you get to a place called the Mount of Olives. It was immediately to the east of Jerusalem. It sat a couple hundred feet higher than the city of Jerusalem, so you were able to see the city stretch before you in a beautiful way. And it is on the Mount of Olives in the middle of Passion Week, Jesus' last week on earth before he is executed, put in a tomb, and to rise on Easter Sunday. And it is here that he deals with the question of the things to come. Often we discuss this passage or these ideas as the end times or Jesus' second coming. And what we find in this passage are seeming, and this is the key idea, how we trust or don't, this is the passage that has shipwrecked many a person's relationship with God. Bertrand Russell, the famed atheist, said that this was one of a handful of passages that convinced him that 
Jesus may have been a good man, but he was not Messiah. And that the Bible may be a good book, but it is not an accurate book. And so what I want us to see is within this passage, Jesus is going to make some statements that seem to be contradictory. And here's what. He's going to talk about uh, signs of something that is to come. And then he's going to say to those with him, by the way, fellas, what I've just described will happen before you all die, before your generation is gone. And so the question then is, well, no, wait a minute. If he's talking about his second coming and that they would still be around at his second coming, well, they've all died. He's not come back, so do we trust Jesus or what's going on here? Do you see how this is a potential challenge? Now, why does this matter to Christ followers? You'll often hear people say, and I think there's, there's good things to this, but I kind of want to challenge it. You'll hear some people say things like, we need to have a childlike faith. And that is true. That is biblical. Jesus says, unless you become like what? Little children, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This means unless you trust me like a little kid trusts his dad, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But here's the problem. Many Christians exchange a childlike faith for a childish faith. Instead of trusting Jesus and then exerting their intellect to wrestle with difficult things, they trust Jesus and they turn their brains off. They are childish, not childlike. Does this make sense, the difference? And so what we have been called to, if you remember on Sunday, Jesus says we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our minds as well. And so I want you to know why you believe what you believe, to hold on to it, so that you are able to, especially as perhaps uh, your children, grandchildren, neighbors' kids, this is going to be something you see more in the younger generations, where these are the questions that come up, and I want us to be able to wrestle through them well together. Does this make sense? We good? All right. Now, with that in mind, put on your thinking caps and bear with me. Now, I I joked a moment ago with Leonard here, but not completely. Most Sundays when I, uh, when I preach, I, I hand write my notes and it's usually about, it fits on pages about yay big and I have about four pages, double space, just handwritten. And you know how long I would talk already. This is about seven pages and it's typed, so I apologize. We'll get out sometime between now and next Friday, okay? <laughs> but I'm going to kind of blitz through a lot of stuff We may or may not have time for questions at the end. If we do, please think about your questions. If I can't answer it, let me study it. Come back, we'll talk next week, okay? But I wanna give you opportunity if time permits. So let's kind of start and we're gonna move on from there. This is Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse one. Notice what it says. It says, as Jesus was leaving the temple. Now pause there. You say, oh no, he's already pausing. Don't worry, we'll move faster. As Jesus is leaving the temple, he has been in the temple now from the end of chapter 11 all the way through chapter 12. He has been grilled by the religious leaders. You have the scribes and the teachers of the law. They come first. Then the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come second. Then the Sadducees, because they're so sad, you see, <laughs> it doesn't get old. And they each come one after the other to get Jesus, trap Jesus, trick Jesus. And he just, I mean, just bats a thousand. Gets all the questions right. But after all that, he leaves the temple and he goes now. And as he is leaving, notice what happens as he's leaving. By the way, interesting point. This will be the last time Jesus is ever in the Jewish temple. He's leaving it for good. So he walks out. He goes on, one of his disciples, we don't know which one, one of his disciples said to Jesus, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. So Jesus is walking out and one of his followers says, do you see the temple, Jesus? Isn't it spectacular? And by the way, based on all historic records, it was an incredible building. Let let me just sort of paint for you a picture. I wish we could go back in time and get a firsthand picture, but this building was one of the seven seven wonders of the world. This was called Herod's Temple because it was built by 
King Herod. It began construction about 20 years before Jesus was born in B.C. 20, give or take a couple of years. But it took and was still being built all the way up to about 64 A.D. Jesus is talking to his followers roughly around 30 A.D. You say 30, I thought Jesus was 33, born in zero. That has to do with us miscalculating some things with our calendar. Jesus was about 33 years though. So in about 30 A.D., Jesus is talking about this, meaning the temple is still being built right now as they are looking at it. But even still, it was incredible. This building, the temple took up about 35 acres the courtyard of the Gentiles. That was the massive outer court. Then you had the court of the women and then where the men can meet and then the priests and the high priest in the temple court and the temple space itself. 35 acres. This was roughly one-fifth of the entirety of the city of Jerusalem at this time. It was a massive place. The walls stood 165 feet tall. I know that doesn't sound very big to us, but in the ancient world, that was unheard of. And beyond simply its sheer magnitude, the stones that were used to build it were immense. We're told that they were roughly, and you can go today and see these stones that are still scattered in the area, about 65, 68 feet long, 9 feet tall, 8 feet wide, and they would weigh up to 4 Hundred tons. It's about the size of a metro city bus, but a lot heavier. These were massive. You say, well, how did they get them up so high? Well, it took 80 years and about 80,000 workers to complete this task. According to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus, if you were coming and if you were from a distance and you looked and you saw it, it looked like a snow-covered mountain with gold. It was made from limestone. Limestone is white, but then they overlaid the limestone with a sheet of gold. It was absolutely beautiful, and it was a gorgeous sight. It's one of the disciples like, Jesus, isn't this magnificent? Never mind the fact that he's just finished rebuking and denouncing the practices within the temple. Isn't it interesting? Side note, that we can often be so impressed with a building, even though what happens inside is not that impressive. And so Jesus is leaving, and this happens. Now, Jesus retorts. Look at what he says here. Do you see, verse 2, all these great buildings? Replied Jesus, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, Jesus is predicting the destruction of Israel in A.D. 70. This is what happened. Israel rebelled against Rome in about A.D. 66, and there began a series of fighting and wars and battles between Israel and Rome until in 70 A.D., Titus, a general for Rome at the time, marched in his troops, put Jerusalem under siege, came in, destroyed the entire city. And in fact, interestingly enough, they set fire to the city and to the temple. Now, what happens to gold when it gets really, 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 really hot? So you can just imagine as the temple got so hot, the gold began to seep down through the the cracks in through the stones. And so Titus commanded his soldiers, you tear every stone down and you get the gold that has seeped in between the cracks. And so today, if you go there, they are on their sides, they're broken off. And, And there are actually places in the street today where you will see giant divots because when a 400 ton stone hits the side or it hits the the ground it just cracks in and so it's gone now he goes on verse three as jesus was sitting on the mount of olives so now they have finished their travels from the uh, temple all the way to the mount of olives as jesus was sitting on the mount of olives opposite the temple notice this peter james john and andrew asked him privately uh so tell us When will all these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to be fulfilled? Now, here's why this is so important. To a Jewish person, they had a very clear picture of how the rest of the world and how the rest of history was going to go. And the destruction of the temple was not part of it, at least not this way. Because their understanding was the physical presence of the temple 
even though it had been built by a pagan ruler, a pagan guy like Herod, it was still a symbol that God was with his people. So for Jesus to say, it's about to all go away, they're going, oh, wait a minute. We need to chat for a moment, Jesus. And so they ask him effectively two questions. The first question they ask is, when will the temple be destroyed? And then the second one is, what are the signs that it is about to happen? Now, let me pause for just a moment, because for you completionists, you're wondering, how do, you know, where are my blanks? Do I fill some stuff in? I forgot to give you two real quick, okay? When studying, and this is what we're going to begin doing over the next few minutes, when studying any passage of Scripture, and this is more important, the more thorny the passage, scholars, and by the way, if you're a Christ follower, you are a scholar of Scripture, scholars ask two questions. They always look to two things. Number one, they look to the context, meaning what's going on. And then the second thing is you look to chronology, meaning what are the order that things are happening. This makes sense, correct? You know, you wouldn't read a book in the middle first, then go to a previous chapter, then go to a later chapter, because you would have no sense of chronology, and you'd have no sense of context. Rather, you look at what's going on, and based on what's happening around it, you can understand the plot line of what is going on. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time. And they wanted to know, when will the temple be destroyed, and what are the signs? So Jesus' answer, and this is so important, listen to me, Jesus' answer in this chapter is a direct response to their question about when and what are the signs. When will the temple be destroyed and what are the signs? Now, here's the thing. Tonight, we are not going to answer the question about when is Jesus coming back? You know, is it going to be pre-tribulation, post-tribulation? Is it going to be millennial, amillennial? No, I mean... And by the way, some of you are going, I have no idea what those words mean. And that's okay. We're not going to get into some of that. There's a lot of debate. But what we do want to do is be faithful to the text and see what Jesus is saying. So we are going to deal with what he says here. And those other things we can certainly have a class about at some point, which would be a whole lot of fun. We'll just leave our knives and other weapons outside the room so disagreements don't get too heated. Okay? Now, problem is, though, Although Jesus is answering their question of when and what, many have taken Jesus' teaching from this passage out of its context and have, I think, misunderstood what's going on here, which has then created challenges when it comes to the question, can we trust Jesus and can we trust the Scriptures? So I want us to see what Jesus is saying, and here's going to be my bottom line. I believe that Jesus is speaking, at least for the first major portion of this passage, he is talking about the destruction of the temple and not his second coming. And I want to show you why I believe that to be the case, because if we understand this rightly, I believe it'll help us to trust Jesus more, not less, and trust Scripture more, not less. And by the way, if you are someone who has uh, a more, uh, maybe a different end times theology, what I'm sharing tonight will not in any way affect that, because this is a separate conversation. Okay? So with that said, here's Jesus' answer. He begins in verse 8. Jesus said to them, All right, fellas, that's the NJV, New Josh version, watch out. Everybody say, watch out, that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name. So he's, he's going to start giving them the signs of when this thing will happen. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. The end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. Now, Jesus 
lists a few things here. Number one, he talks about those who claim to be Messiah. He talks about wars and rumors of wars, and he talks about natural disasters. Let's take these one at a time. You say, okay, so what is he referencing? Well, it turns out within the first century alone, there were many who came claiming to be Messiah or God's anointed one who would liberate the Israelites from their oppressive under the Roman boot heel. Thudius, if you guys like names, there's one, Thudius, or Thudius, or if you're in the south, Thaddeus. In AD 40, he gathered a group of followers, about 400 of them, and he took them to the Jordan River along with their possessions, and he claimed that he would part the Jordan River. He didn't. Rome didn't like him. They came, they killed everyone except for him. He got away. Isn't that interesting? The leader left the followers. We also have another man. We don't have his name, simply the Egyptian. He led his 30,000 followers to the Mount of Olives in about 55 to 60 AD to watch Jerusalem. As he said, it was going to be destroyed by God, but it wasn't in 55 to 60 AD. Rather, his followers were killed by Felix, a Roman guy, while he again fled. So there were many people who claimed to be Messiah in the first century. Now, what about these wars and rumors of wars? Well, it turns out that in AD 40, I'm giving you a lot of content. It'll be recorded. You can go back if you need more. But in AD 40, one of the emperors, Caligula, just a horrible, horrible emperor, threatened to erect in the Jewish temple a statue of himself. Now, can you imagine what that would be like as a Hebrew person to hear that a pagan emperor was going to put his idolatrous image in your temple? And because of this, many Jewish people began to revolt and riot, and there began a rumor that Rome was going to come in and destroy them utterly for the riot. So there was a rumor of war. Interestingly enough, Rome never did. It was simply a rumor. What about natural disasters and earthquakes, famines? Well, it turns out there were many earthquakes. There was one that affected Colossae. How many of you are familiar with the letter to the Colossians? So this one affected Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. These were three cities that were located near one another in AD 60. There was also another one in Phrygia in AD 60, and then a massive earthquake, etc., in this little-known city called Pompeii. How many of you have heard of Pompeii? which was destroyed in 63 AD. What about famines? Well, it turns out that there were a number of famines during the reign of Emperor Claudia, AD 41 through 54. So several things are lining up. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus' words are truthful, faithful, historically accurate so far. That's what I want you to see. Now, they go on. Jesus says, You, and this is going to be an interesting point, he's now going to speak to them directly. He says, you must be on guard. You will be handed over to the local council and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must, and this is one of the passages, verse 10, that a lot of people have issue with. We'll come back to it. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, Jesus' words here sound like an overview of the book of Acts, don't they? What happens in the book of Acts? The gospel begins to spread. The Holy Spirit comes there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. People begin to be saved. And the religious leaders, beginning in Jerusalem, don't like it. So they do what? They arrest some of the apostles. They are flogged. They are beaten. They are lied about. They are executed. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. You then have the gospel spreading, and then you have a man by the name of Paul who does what Jesus just says. He stands before kings and emperors. He stands before King Agrippa near the end of the book of Acts. So you have here Jesus saying, look, this is what's going to happen leading up to this great destruction that I mentioned a moment ago. The disciples were 
persecuted, Paul came before kings. Now, what about verse 10? Notice Jesus says, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. This is one of the verses that people often take to explain why this must be referencing some future second coming because at the time of the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the entire globe had not been missionized. But here's what's interesting. According to the apostle Paul, in the book to the Colossians, he says that the whole world has been told. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. You may just want to jot this down. He says this, though, the gospel which has come to you, Colossians, and indeed in the whole world. The reason he says this is because in the first century, the known world was the Mediterranean world. It was those countries that surrounded the immediate area around the Mediterranean. And by the time of the destruction of the temple in AD 70, those surrounding areas, the known world, had heard the gospel. So this is a way to understand it, I think, faithfully. Now, he continues. When you see, verse, 13, or verse 14, when you see, and this is one of the big little passages. If you want to underline it or make a note, here's one. When you see the abomination that causes desolation. That just sounds like a cool title to a book, doesn't it? You know, this is volume four. I mean, it could have been a left behind series book right there. You know, we're going to talk about the abomination that, you know, causes desolation. But he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. So that's Mark's little note to all of us. Then let those who are in Judea, notice this, flee to the mountains. Pay attention to that. No, let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress. Another translation. Let me just ask, does anyone else have a different translation Instead of days of distress, do you have a different translation? What do you have? These are going to be hard days. Good. Anyone else a different translation? Oh, okay, that's the one I'm looking for, Roy. Uh, these will be the day of tribulation. You go, oh, there it is. Isn't this talking about the second coming? Well, again, that passage or that word is used to describe many different things. We'll come back to that in a second. Because those will be the days of distress or tribulation unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equal again. So let's walk through this. The abomination of desolation. Many people have said, well, what is that referencing? Is this the, the big bad antichrist, the guy at the end of the world, the big old baddie? Well, we don't think so because there's a couple other options on the table. One is that in 2nd century AD, there was a pagan ruler named Antiochus who sacrificed pigs in the temple area. And that was an abomination. Now, what's interesting, though, I don't think that's what Jesus is referencing because Jesus says what is to come and that had already happened. But it turns out, again, if we go back just a moment, that this abomination of desolation refers to a messianic prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. Verse 20 through 27, Daniel 9, 20 through 27, which was about the Messiah and about the destruction of the temple. You can read that later. Now, again, some people believe that it references Antiochus Epiphanes, but I believe a more right reading would be referencing back again to Caligula when he tries to erect a statue of himself in 40 AD, roughly 10 years after Jesus tells these words to his disciples. And this should be, as Jesus says, this is the beginning of where you need to be paying attention. Things are happening. It's coming sooner. Josephus also, by the way, believed that Daniel 9 referred to Emperor Titus. Remember, Josephus was the early church historian, uh, or not church, but a Jewish historian who referenced a lot of the details happening around the fall of the temple. And he believed that Jesus' words from Mark 13, rather Daniel 9, referenced uh, the destruction of the temple as well in AD 66 through 70. Now, this phrase, flee to the mountains, is weird. 
You say, well, why is that weird? Here, here's what's weird about it. Okay, conventional wisdom. In the ancient world, if things were going bad, you didn't go somewhere that didn't have walls. I mean, you wanted to find the place with the biggest, strongest walls you could find, right? I can remember, and I've shared with you before, I, growing up, I did not have a great mouth filter. I would often get myself in trouble with people far larger than me, and that, again, was never a difficult thing because most people were larger than me growing up. And whenever I would get myself in trouble, I knew that I had to find some place that had a large structure between myself and the behemoth that wanted to kill me. And so, in the ancient world, the same thing was true. If things were going bad, go to the cities, get behind walls. But Jesus says, when things are going bad, don't you dare go hide in the cities. You flee to the mountains. Now, interestingly enough... When Rome began to come against Israel because of the rioting and the fighting from 66 to 70 AD. By the way, let me put that up here. It's kind of important dates. Seventy AD is temple destroyed. And this is the period of basically the fighting between Rome and and Israel. Now, what happened though is those who ran to the city of Jerusalem thinking they would be saved, there were about a million, really 1.1 million Jews who when they went in there, they stayed in there and then Rome came and sieged the city. And it was a horrible, horrible sight. And again, I won't even get into the historic records of what took place during the siege, but immediately following the siege, when Rome broke through Into Jerusalem, they killed over one million Jews. They were not saved by the city, were they? You know who did not die in the siege of Jerusalem? The Christians. Because they took Jesus' words seriously and they fled to the countrysides and to the mountains. And many were saved because of this. So, Jesus says, flee to the mountains. He then references the days of distress or tribulation. Again, Jesus' words, I believe, are in context of the temple's destruction. And then when he says, these will be days unequal from the beginning of time. Now, remember that to the Hebrew person, the temple is the center of their world. In the ancient world, if you were a Hebrew, you were required by law to attend Passover if you lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem. It was the center of your world. And if you lived beyond 15 miles, you just simply dreamt of being in the holy city for Passover or visiting or seeing the great temple. And so for them, the end of the temple was the end of the world as they knew it. And this is what Jesus is alluding to when he says, it will be worse and unequaled from the beginning of time. Verse 20. You know, we're going to kind of keep moving here. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. Jesus is describing what will happen. But for the sake of the elect, by the way, how many of you have heard that word elect? You ever heard that? It's used often when talking about end times theology. It's talking about those who've been chosen. Here's what's interesting. Scripture says that if you are in Christ, you are chosen. So you, my brothers and sister, are the elect. You say, well, are we the only ones? No, guess what? Anytime someone follows Jesus, they're the elect. And there's a whole lot of room for the elect, okay? So he says, though, if the Lord had not cut short those days from 66 to 70, no one would survive. For the sake of the elect whom he had chosen, he has shortened them at that time. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. Again, many were coming claiming to bring salvation. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Now he goes on, and he's going to use some curious language in 24 and 5. But in those days, following that distress, and, and, and now you're going to notice Jesus is now quoting someone else. Do you see this in your text? It might be indented, this little section. Notice what he's saying. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament book or prophet Isaiah. He says, For in those days, following the distress, the sun 
will be darkened, and the moon will not, will not give its lights. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And we're all going, I'd like to see that movie. It's not, it's, here's what he's doing. If you go back to Isaiah, Isaiah is employing what is called apocalyptic language. If you want to impress your friends, reference apocalyptic language. It is simply a metaphoric way of speaking. You use images and pictures to describe earthly realities. So the book of Revelation describes Jesus as having a sword coming out of his mouth. Question, does Jesus have a literal metal sword inside his mouth right now that just kind of pokes out periodically? No, probably not. Rather, it references the idea that what comes from him is truth. It cuts between lies and truth. This actually references Ephesians chapter 6, where the word of God is called the sword of the spirit, right? So it's a picture. So Isaiah is using pictures in the Old Testament to describe something. It is figurative language describing this, God's judgment. Now, I think there's two ways to read this, and I'm just going to be real frank. I'm going to lay my cards out. I'm not sure which way to lean. I'll leave it up to you. Some people take this little section right here as figurative, meaning it's not, Jesus is just using the language to describe something intense. Others will say, no, 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 it's literal. Things actually happen. So let me give you both sides, okay? The figurative side is simply this. Jesus is saying that the destruction of the temple is God's judgment. As Gentiles, we do not get how that would have blown up their world. I I don't understand the centrality of the temple as a Gentile person. It's just not a part of my world. But if everything in your world revolves around the temple and now it's gone, it is as though the cosmos themselves have just fallen apart. After all, it's the temple where you made sacrifice. What do you do if you cannot sacrifice for your sin and you don't believe Jesus is Messiah? Is that a big deal? Oh, yeah. Do you realize that the entire Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, had to be rethought as a result of the destruction of the temple? After all, there are no more priests. There are no more sacrifices. There is now no place for them to go and have the sacrifices made. It was the end of Judaism as they knew it. And folks, it has not ever returned since. It was the end. So in a figurative sense, yes, it was the falling apart and breaking of that way of life. The literal sense, though, I think is fascinating. It turns out... Within those years, there were a couple things that happened. Number one, there was a comet that flew through the night sky that those in that part of the world noted and believed was a sign of God's judgment. So there was a belief that this was what Jesus is talking about. The second one is kind of weird, and it makes me feel awkward sharing, but then I realize if God can raise a man from the dead, he can do what I'm about to share with you now. Uh, Josephus, I will refer to him a lot, because he was a big voice in the first century and has given us a lot of information about our first century brothers and sisters. Interestingly enough, there were reports during a season, and he even was incredulous about it. Like, I I don't know what to do with this. But there were so many different people who independently reported this exact same phenomenon, but he, he says basically that numerous people from all over claim to have seen chariots and soldiers in the clouds themselves. And he didn't know what to do with it either. But if you know your Old Testament, there's another place where chariots are seen along with soldiers who are part of the kingdom of God, and there are only a couple people who actually see it. Do you remember the Old Testament prophet Elijah? Elisha, rather. And he prayed that his servant would see the army of God that was surrounding him. Do you remember this? And I just wonder if there have not been moments in human history where God sort of pulls back the veil of the spiritual and says, you need to see what's really going on. 
And so if Jesus is using metaphoric language figuratively, it certainly works. If literally these things were happening, I think that also is compelling. Now, we'll move on. Our time is tight. Verse 26 and 7, at that time, people will see the Son of Man. By the way, Son of Man was Jesus' favorite way of describing himself. That comes from Daniel chapter 7. We'll come back to that. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power. Now, I want to stop. This is one of the verses that people go, this has to refer to the second coming. Because it's saying Jesus is coming in the clouds. But listen to me. Here's why this is a problem. If this is referencing Jesus' second coming, and if in these same words Jesus says, and you, talking to his current disciples, you will see these things happen. This will happen in your generation. Has Jesus come back for a second time yet, church? Nope. So either Jesus is wrong, and he told them something that did not actually happen, or we don't understand him correctly. Does this make sense? That's why this is really important, okay? So he says... At that time, people will see the Son of Man, referring to himself, coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Let's just walk through this. The Son of Man, again, references, is referenced in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is not about the Messiah's second coming. If you go back and read Daniel 7, it's not talking about Messiah's second coming. But it's about, listen to me, it's about... Here's a technical word, the vindication of the Son of Man, the proving right or being justified of the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus is about to be executed for claiming to be Messiah, and everyone says, no, you ain't, and we're going to kill you for saying you are. That's what's about to happen, correct? But what Jesus is saying is, I'm telling you about a future event, and I'm giving you information, I'm giving you specific signs, and when you see all these things coming true, it will prove that I was right. Daniel 7 is talking about the Son of Man being proved right, and Jesus referencing that is saying it will prove that I am right. You say, well, okay, fine. What about all the clouds and and all that stuff? Because clearly that's not talking about him being right. Great question. In the Hebrew mind, clouds and the sky symbolized the realm of God, the divine. Jesus is... And this is, this is where, there's two views on this. This is where I tend to fall on this. The view here is that Jesus is employing, again, a metaphoric language to describe that he is not simply a man who guessed it right, but he is the God who prophesied the truth that would come. And then it says, and he will gather his people. He will send his angels. Now, R.C. Sproul, I think, is right when he says the word, of course, angel, is the word angelos, which can also be translated messenger, someone who tells something. And he will gather his people to himself, meaning that as these things come true, they will be further evidence or messengers of the truthfulness that he is God because he predicted this would happen, the destruction of the temple, and it happened as he said. So the messengers or the messenger, the angel, is the proofs of all these signs. Again, I know this gets a little complicated, but hopefully this is making a little bit of sense. Now, when it says the end, uh, uh, look, because of time, I'm going to have to skip that. We'll keep going here. Now, Jesus... Yeah, now this makes sense. One last thing here. Can we take a little side note? Sorry. Here's my problem. When I get going, I find things, I'm like, does this make sense or not? I? Okay, so I'm just going to do it. And if you have to leave, get kids, feel free. You go, I don't have kids at home. Great, stick around. So here's what happens. The disciples, one of the things that makes this more thorny is the disciples ask Jesus another question or a little more detailed question in the Matthew account of this passage. 
Oh yeah, they, they, they asked the same question. Matthew records it. But in Matthew 27, the disciples were set, told in verse 3 of Matthew 27, you may want to jot this down, the disciples came to Jesus privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the signs of your coming and of the ends of the age. So people read that and go, well, see, they're talking about the second coming. Now here's, here's the way to understand this. Again, I, I think we have to be consistent with this. Because either Jesus makes predictions about the destruction of the temple only, and those were fulfilled, or he's predicting the temple falling and his second return within their generation, and he got that wrong. And so you see, we need to figure out what he's really talking about here. So what does it mean in Matthew 27, 3, where it talks about the end of the age? Well, it turns out that certainly the end of the age could refer to the end of time but the scriptures actually refer to the end of the age elsewhere as the end of the Jewish age and the beginning of the Gentile age. For instance, in the Old Testament, God worked exclusively through what people? The Jews, right? Now, there were some exceptions to it, uh, Ruth, the Moabitess, and some others, but as a general rule, it was the Jewish people. Then, in the New Testament, that begins to change. After the church begins to grow, it becomes, the church becomes almost exclusively a Jewish or Gentile movement. Gentile. In fact, there's biblical support to this. If you go to Luke 21, 24... Or Romans eleven twenty five, the Bible refers to the end of the age of the Jews and the beginning of the Gentile age. I'll put these up on the board a little bit later. So Jesus may have been talking about the end of the Jewish age and not the end of history. Now, let's get back to Mark. Mark 13, 28 through 31. Are you all still with me? Sort of? Yeah, you're going, uh... Okay, just hang with me a few more minutes. There is a point, I promise. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. We're going to skip through this here, but basically Jesus says, I want you to see a fig tree. It buds, and when it's going, you know that summertime is upon us. In the same way, when you see the signs happening around you, the end, the destruction of the temple is upon us. He says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Again, people say, well, does this mean the end of time, Jesus' second coming? Well, there's two problems with it. Number one, the first problem is that Jesus elsewhere describes the end of the world not as a destruction of a world, but a reclaiming of the world. Romans chapter 8, that all of creation is groaning as in childbirth or birth pangs. Quick question, mamas. The birth pains you had, did it end with fireball of death and destruction? You're like, yes, they are called toddlers. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, no. No. Did it end in death and destruction and fire and nothing? No, 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 no. The birth pangs led to new life, new birth. You say, yes, but what about scripture that talks about how there will be a great fire at the end and the world will be destroyed by fire? This is a side, but listen to me here. In the Old Testament, God, we're told, destroyed the earth with water. Do you remember this story? quick question, where are we standing or sitting right now? On the earth. Destruction, and the better way to understand that is God cleansed the world with water. He destroyed the sin, he reclaimed it, restored it, started over. At his second coming, when we're told that he will destroy it with fire, have you ever seen someone clean a pan by putting it in a fire? burns the dirt off. Or what about gold? You get it out of the ore and you stick it in a hot, hot fire. And what does it do? It purifies it. It destroys all the other stuff. It destroys and it restores and purifies to what it ought to be. Understand me that Jesus is talking about the reclaiming. So if Jesus is not so here, when he says heaven and earth will pass away, he's not talking about the ultimate destruction of all things. Okay, so what is he talking about? Heaven and earth will pass away. Okay, again, the temple in the Jewish world, where did you go to be close to God? The temple. The temple in the ancient mind is where heaven and earth meet, correct? So closer to the temple, you are closer to whom? 
well, what happens if the temple is gone, heaven and earth, it's gone, it's broken, this is not working? Most scholars seem to think that this is referring not to the end times, but to the destruction of the temple, the place where people thought they went to be close to God. Quick question, do you have to go to a place now to be close to God? Who is the temple now? We are. You are the temple of God. I am the temple of God. Heaven and earth has, have, has passed away. In the ancient world, the temple is gone, but he says his words will not pass away. Uh, what are we doing tonight, church, in Chattanooga, Tennessee, almost 2,000 years later? What are we doing? His words have not passed away, have they? So this is what Jesus seems to be saying. I'm trying just to give you a consistent way of seeing what Jesus is saying, and he's referring to the destruction of the temple and not to something else in this, this specific passage. So I want to pause there. Our time is really out, and I don't want to cheat you of something here. Here's what I would tell you. Everything we've just read, I believe, is referencing the destruction of the temple exclusively. And I hope I've given you ways of reading the troubling passages through that section to understand how it could be referring to the temple. But here's where, if we had time, I would take you next. He now, in the last few verses, I believe does say, oh, and by the way, let's talk about when I do come back. We don't have time to get into that. But if we understand this first portion to be exclusively about the temple, then I believe that Jesus is trustworthy because he does not contradict anything he's saying about it happening in their generation or the things that will happen to them. And then the second portion, if we had time, we'd go through and we'd see some of the beautiful things about his coming back. But I want to leave you with a couple so what's because those of you here whose brain is mush, here's your so what. Are you ready? Get your pencil out. We're going to write it down and then you're going to go home I got no time. Here we go. Four things I would tell you real fast. We need a posture when we go through this. And, and I, I, by the way, I don't expect you all to agree with me, and that is okay. You go home and study your Bible. If you don't do anything else after tonight but study the Bible, if for no other reason than to prove me wrong, praise God, I'm so glad you're doing it, okay? I'm not offended. I think it's great. So the first thing is, with all this, we need a posture of humility, truth is, in the next section, he's going to say, no one knows when I come back. No one knows all the details of life. No one knows. Listen, I don't know everything. I'm trusting in the goodness of Jesus to save me and not my ability to figure everything out. What about you? And there are people with whom I disagree, but guess what? I could be wrong on this. I'm going to show the charity to them that I hope they'll show to me. We need a posture of humility. The second thing, though, is we need a posture, I would say, of hope. Meaning even though we don't know all the details, we certainly know the one who has all the answers and knows all the things. My hope is not in Josh's ability to know it, but in Jesus Christ who saved me. How about you? Here's the third one. He's going to say repeatedly things like, watch, be on guard, and look out, and things like this, that it's going to be hard. It was hard for the first century. And guess what? It is still going to be hard until Jesus comes back. Right now, there are more martyrs, more Christians being killed for their faith today than, at, than more than any other time in human history. So while we need humility and hope, here's your third one. I think we need, in America especially, a hardiness, a strength to our faith that is not easily rocked, not easily broken. That we have the courage to claim Jesus, that no matter how all this other stuff falls out, when someone says to you, do you trust him? For heaven's sakes, no one's putting a, a gun to my head or a sword to my back. But I don't want to say something because it might embarrass me. But that we would have a hardiness because we trust the one. And then the last thing is simply this. I would just suggest that I do believe while this talks about the destruction of the temple, I also believe that our Savior is coming back. Do you believe he's coming back? I believe it. And Jesus will say in the next section, we don't know when it's going to happen, the day or the hour. So listen, live today as though Jesus is coming tomorrow. And I was just thinking, what, what a beautiful thing it will be 
If he came back in our generation and we get to see that moment when he returns, we've already talked about that, our time is up, but here's the big thing. I would just encourage you, be humble with others, have hope in Jesus, strengthen yourself, be a hearty Christian, study the word of God and live today as though Jesus could come back as early as tomorrow morning.